Today's Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7 and 15. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. From the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Mark chapter 12. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he had said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Jesus said to them, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that you would be with us and bless us now as we sit with your scriptures. Would your spirit draw near to us and stir us in heart and mind, body and soul. Would you stir us to pay attention to you. Would you stir us to pay attention to the ways that you are at work in our midst and in our lives, calling us more deeply and more fully into life with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you ever heard the story about how the Yucatan Peninsula got its name? Anybody know this one? When the Spanish explorers first arrived from across the ocean, uh, they met the Mayan people who, who lived there, right? And they wanted to know where it was that they had landed. Where, where, where are we? And so they asked, what is this place? What is the name of it? And their conversation partners responded with a word that sounded something like Yucatan. 
And so that is what they called it. And in the, in the wake of European colonialism in the Americas, that's the name that has stuck with that place. And only later did it become apparent that that word that they heard that sounded something like Yucatan was, the, was their, in their native language, it was their word for, we don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> right? Sometimes misunderstandings stick and stick hard. Render unto Caesar is a misunderstanding that has stuck and stuck hard in the church. It's that render unto Caesar phrase that we get from the King James Bible version of, of this passage. Uh, it's, it's one that has come to mean uh, a number of things, all sort of related. Uh, it's one that I see uh, popping up in my social media feed about every April 15th or so when it's tax season, right? It's time to give Caesar what's Caesar's, which shows you something about who my Facebook friends are. It's a, it's a verse or it's a statement that has essentially been interpreted to be Jesus' instruction to us saying something like, Dear Christian, be a good citizen where you are, under the government that rules where and when you are. Which, of course, in and of itself is a, certain, is a legitimate theological topic and, uh, and conversation of what does it mean to be a good citizen. And there's much, certainly, that, that we learn from Jesus and from the scriptures that, that would give us a lot to talk about there. It's just that that's not what this verse is about at all. This passage has also been used to say something like, you give your tax to God, you give your, tithe, or you give your, tithe, your tax to Caesar, give your tithe to God, and then the rest of what you have, money-wise, is yours to do whatever you want with it, right? It's like everybody gets their little cut, everybody has their own little sphere, uh, and so just, you know, Caesar is sort of analogous to God, that's sort of analogous to you, carve up your finances accordingly. Also, this text has been used to support um, as used like a biblical proof text to support separation of church and state or a doctrine uh, commonly known as the spirituality of the church, which in its better moments has been like why we shouldn't do crusades, you know, why the church shouldn't employ military might for enforcing the reign of Christ. In its much worse moments, it's been this sort of theological firewall behind which Christians have hid uh, and appealed to for non-involvement in justice issues. It's been an argument of, um, of why, why the church, especially in this country, especially around racial injustice, why shouldn't we get involved? Why shouldn't the church speak prophetically about unjust things? Well, it's the spirituality of the church. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. You get a God for the church, and you get something else for the rest of the world. I do not think render to Caesar means what we think it means. It's something else. And I think what we need to recognize if we're going to get there and see what it does mean is we need to recognize that this isn't just some sort of straightforward teaching moment of Jesus with his disciples, right? Um, in the gospel stories, there are lots of moments where Jesus is with his disciples and he pulls them aside and he says, hey, I'm going to tell you something that's really important for you if you're going to follow after me. There are lots of those moments. This isn't one of them. This is a different kind of moment. It's a trap, right? We've seen this before. This is a moment where people who are trying to get Jesus to wade into a contemporary debate and to say something that will allow them to pin him down 
inside of a controversial topic to get him in trouble. Jesus is speaking into a situation like that. It's sort of similar if you remember the marriage and divorce text from Mark's gospel a few weeks ago. It's a situation more like that. They're trying to, give, they're trying to get Jesus to give an incriminating answer. And if you've ever found yourself facing a trap question, maybe you can appreciate the difference between answering a sincere question and an insincere one. Do you know that experience? Have you ever been in an experience where you've found yourself uh, facing an insincere question where the answer that you felt compelled to give was the answer the question deserved more than the answer the question was seeking? Do you know that experience? That's what Jesus is in the midst of now. And if you just think, like for me, if you ask me a sincere question, a question that's coming from a place of curiosity with you, where you want to know what I think, and that's what we're doing. You're curious. You're inquiring of me. I'm going to answer you in a way that fits that, right? And you would do the same for me. But if you're coming to me asking me a question where you're trying to get me to say something, or you're trying to nail me down or pin me down or size me up or whatever, you're trying to locate me on your predetermined map of good and bad views on all sorts of issues, I'm going to give you an answer that tries to end that conversation. And you would do the same with me. And there are all kinds of ways that people can do this in a, like a dishonest or political way that feels icky, right? Where you, you know, the, the kinds of ways that people will answer questions where, you know, they're not straightforward in a way that, that um, inspires distrust. I think there are also other ways to do that that are honest and wise, and I think that's what we see Jesus doing here. There are ways in which you're giving the insincere question the answer it deserves, rather than the answer it seeks. Not lying, and not telling the people what they want to hear, but rather wisely giving a measured answer because the situation calls for it. And there are lots of situations you can imagine that would call for a measured answer rather than an unbridled free answer, right? Situations where maybe keeping the peace is important or keeping confidence is important, or situations where leaders leading institutions have to bear the weight of being misunderstood because it's for the greater good of what's going on, and you can't just say everything. Or something, sometimes it's just as simple as caring well for the person in front of you. Sometimes because that person is like four years old and can't handle the whole truth. Or maybe because that person is angry and they're not ready to have that kind of conversation. All kinds of situations require of us to be wise and measured with our speech. And Jesus is finding himself in one of these trap moments in this text. And the primary purpose in these trap stories in Mark isn't to present Jesus's positive or comprehensive teaching about his views on issues, right? But the point is rather to expose the hypocrisy of the questioners. It's to expose that moral bankruptcy of the religious establishment that Jesus is being presented as an opponent of in Mark's gospel, And Jesus is being presented as one whose character and whose command of the scriptures bear witness to the fact that he, Jesus, is the one God has anointed to lead us into the way of living with God in God's world. That Jesus is the one God has anointed to enact and accomplish and lead us in the way of God. 
And so we might be tempted to try to squeeze out of some of these texts a lot of particular lessons on the issue at hand, but when we do that, we're failing to recognize how the trap context shapes Jesus' answer and how these trap episodes fit in this larger story Mark is telling about Jesus. And in this case, the render unto Caesar text. It's one where the subtle point Jesus is making so often gets lost because we're trying to squeeze a straightforward lesson out of this statement. But just so we know, the punchline of what Jesus says isn't render unto Caesar. The punchline is give to God what's God's. If there's any sort of lesson we are going to try to draw out of this text, we need to start by recognizing that the lesson, if there's one in there, is give to God what is God's. And if you were a Jewish listener in Jesus' day, what you would have understood in him saying that is that everything is God's. Especially the land they're standing on and the fruits of it. Right in the heart of Torah, the Jewish law, in Leviticus chapter 25, we see God giving this description of the land, saying this land, this land of Israel, right, the land they're standing in as Jesus is having this conversation, this land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, and you are but aliens who have become my tenants. Even the silver and the gold are mine, says the Lord. Speaking of tenants, the passage right before this one is a parable that Jesus tells about tenants, where he's depicting the rulers of the temple as unruly tenants in the vineyard owned by God. There's something there. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God, to God what is God's, he's giving an answer that portrays Caesar and God and their respective kingdoms, not as like parallels to whom each is owed their due, but as opposites, as opponents. And the question is, to whom will you give your allegiance? And will your life follow that allegiance? At the end of the day, if there's any straightforward political application for us today, it's probably more along the lines of following Jesus' example of civil disobedience than it is around be a good little citizen Christian. Because Jesus here is actually doing something that's relatively seditious. If there's a political application for us today, it's probably following in Jesus' way of nonviolent speaking truth to power. Speaking truth to power with wisdom and with courage and with measured delivery that doesn't add unnecessary fuel to an already out-of-control fire. It's probably about following Jesus' lead and letting God's vision for a flourishing world shape our imagination for the kind of world we seek. And letting God's means for bringing about that world of flourishing, the way of the cross, the way of love, the way of Christ, to shape the way we engage in going about seeking that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Without letting our allegiances to political parties or other agendas hijack the church's mission hijack our calling, or hijack our way of doing things as if some sort of ends justify other sorts of means that don't fit the way of Christ. And it's worth noting that Mark's original audience was living in a profoundly polarized political situation. 
So Mark's probably writing in like the mid-60s or so. Um, and in that moment, the Jewish people are facing a pretty challenging political moment where there's a tax burden on them, a census tax that's been on them for 60-ish years at this point. There have been a series of uprisings and rebellions and attempts to, to try to get free of this burden that the Romans have levied on the people ever since they started occupying the land in 6 AD, CE. And Jesus is wading into that moment, and Mark is writing into that moment in the mid-60s where the people are facing this problem of, like, what do we do? You've got one party that says we should cooperate with Rome, the tyrannical state. And you've got another party that's saying, no, we should revolt and take up our weapons. And Mark's audience is trying to figure out how to live as faithful people of God inside of a world where those are the parties that are, that are primarily available to them. Those are the political agendas that they're saying, which way are we going to go? Are we going to revolt or are we going to cooperate? And what Jesus does in this passage is actually model for that audience a posture of non-alignment with either of those parties and a way of simply following God and God's way and seeking God's kingdom that doesn't capitulate to the partisan agendas that look like they're the only options available. If there's a straightforward application, it's going to be more in the realm of that than it is anything remotely resembling what we typically think of when we hear people say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And lastly, I would just say, if there's going to be an application, it's going to be something more like following Jesus in the way of seeking God's kingdom in every area of our lives and in all the earth with consistency and integrity. We had the privilege yesterday, a number of us from City Church, to join with other leaders from Liberty Center City uh, to do a session with Rachel Clinton Chen from the Allender Center, where Rachel uh, led us in a really, really lovely consideration of the importance of integrity. Not just simply thinking narrowly in the, in the sense of like moral integrity, of doing right things, but integration, of being whole persons, of living with with an integration of our life where all of the parts of who we are, all of our story, all of our experiences, all of our thoughts and words and deeds and dreams and hopes and fears and funny little quirks, all of it, we live within the presence of God and God's people as those known and loved by God, known and loved by one another, and in so being that, experiencing the healing, the restoration that God actually works out in our lives as we live toward God and one another that way. Not as fragmented people who are pulled in a thousand different directions so that we're living these compartmentalized, fragmented lives that look different in every sphere of life that we find ourselves in, but as whole people, whole persons, body, soul, mind. This text is casting a vision for life with God and Christ that says more about that kind of stuff then it says anything about be a good little citizen and pay your taxes. All right, I'm not just going to assert that. I'll make my case. Two, imp two important things about the setting of this story that we need to think about. One is just that undercurrent of tax revolt that we've already talked about. And the second is that this whole thing's happening in the temple. So the tax revolt 
I've already basically said it. I mean, basically from, from the year 6 until the year 66, uh, there's this situation where a tax is being imposed by Roman authorities from when they first occupy Palestine until revolt breaks out in 66, and it's basically like full-on war. In between 6 and 66, and remember, Jesus' whole life and ministry is happening in the decades in the middle there, there's this whole undercurrent of oppression where the Roman census tax is being levied on a people and the burden is, pre- is predominantly falling upon the peasantry and that money is getting used to do all the big expensive building projects and to shore up the power of the ruling class. Okay, So there's this tax, the census tax, that is a major deal and it's a major focal point of the unrest of the people in the place. That's a big deal. There's also been this history of revolts that started with a guy named Judas from Galilee who led a revolt back when, you know, a few decades before Jesus arrives on the scene. And then his, like, kids and maybe grandkids or something get involved later down the road where people coming from Galilee with an agenda and a following of a crowd have sort of a history here, and the tax issue becomes right at the heart of it. So that's one thing. The second thing is this is happening in the temple at Passover time. So if you remember, where we are in the story is Jesus has already come into Jerusalem in that triumphal entry scene on what we typically celebrate on Palm Sunday. The crowds have heralded him as king. They're following him. There's a lot of buzz in the air, a lot of energy. The throngs of pilgrims are coming from Passover, so it's crowded, and there's a lot of energy, and it's a moment that's kind of ripe for something happening which is why Pontius Pilate's in town. He doesn't normally live in Jerusalem. He's there temporarily as part of the added crowd control measures around the festival in case things get out of hand, because sometimes they do. So that's the scene. The crowd is there, it's all a buzz, and they play a major role in what's going on here. Everything that happens in these scenes is happening in the temple. So we remember last week, you had the whole fig tree scene. They go back out, have the whole lesson about this new community of people who are going to believe in a God that's not in the temple, and the community is going to be founded on this faith and prayer and forgiveness. And as that happens, God will restore his people to be that house of prayer and this tree of life that we were always supposed to be. Well, shortly thereafter, in the following verse, they go back to the temple at the end of chapter 11. And when Jesus arrives back in the temple, he's immediately questioned by the temple leaders, by whose authority are you doing the things you're doing? You've just totally obstructed this place. On whose authority are you allowed to do anything about this? It's another trap question, and Jesus answers it the way he does. He asks them a question in return. He's like, okay, fine. I see your question. I'll raise you one. Uh, Was John's baptism from heaven or from humans? And now they're in sort of a sticky wicket because they know if they answer with it was from heaven, then it's like, well, why didn't you obey him? And why did you help get him killed? But if they say it's from humans, it says they feared the crowd. Remember that crowded group that's all there that's abuzz around Jesus? They all believe John was a prophet. And so if they denounce John, are they just going to be adding fuel to the fire of this Jesus's apparent impending revolution? They're afraid. And then Jesus tells them a parable. And it's this parable of the tenants where he portrays the temple 
rulers as these unruly tenant farmers on a vineyard. And the story goes something like this. The owner of a vineyard uh, went away to a far place, and he left tenants in charge. But he kept sending them servants to collect the rents, and when the servants would come, the tenants would beat them up or even sometimes kill them. Until finally the owner sent his own son, the heir of the vineyard, and when he came, the tenants were like, ooh, this is the son Let's kill him because he's the heir, and if he's dead, we get to keep this. And Jesus tells this story, and that's where he says, you know, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of what God is building. And in the verse right before our passage starts, it says, when they realized he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd. So they left him and went away, And then they send this group of Pharisees and Herodians to trap him. So so here's the situation, right? You've got the crowded temple. There's electricity in the air. Jesus is at the center of it. You've got a fearful ruling class that are afraid of these crowds and what feels like, you know, just like basically dry hay. And Jesus is this lit match. And they're like, we don't want this thing to ignite. How do we snuff him out? We've got to snuff this guy out. And every attempt to do that is falling short. So here they're going to try another one. So they send this group, a rather unlikely coalition of the Pharisees, who are like the Bible experts, and the Herodians, who are like the royalists, who are all about the puppet king under the emperor, who typically, they are not allies, but they are both equally disturbed by Jesus's apparent revolution. And so they come, and they're basically like, all right, we're going to trap this guy, and we know just how to do it. We've got the question. And so they come to him, and they first they start buttering him up, right? They come. It's, it's a rhetorical flourish. It's, it's common in, in the discourse of rabbis. But here they come, and what they say to him is like, hey, look, we know that you are a guy who will tell the truth no matter what the consequence is. It's a dare. So, truth teller, got a question for you. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to do those things? It's a well-laid trap, because here's the thing. If Jesus answers with a no, what happens? Immediately, the Roman authorities arrest him, right? He's basically saying, I'm here to lead the, the, I'm here to overthrow Rome. I'm here to lead this crowd in opposing the emperor. That's a capital crime. But if he says yes, his rabbinic credentials will be suspect because all of a sudden it'll be like, well, hey, what about all the things Torah says? And the crowd that's following him, that's anticipating him doing something, would be alienated as well. Either way, a yes or a no gets him killed. That's the trap. And so Jesus brilliantly answers the question, without a yes or a no, but while still speaking truth to power. It's it's really quite amazing, actually. He asks this question. He says, bring me the denarius and let's see it. Note, Jesus doesn't have one. But the people questioning him do. And that's important because then he asks the question, tell me, whose head and whose inscription is on this text, or whose head and whose title, whose image and whose inscription, if you want to render it that way. Basically, by invoking image language, Jesus is basically saying, okay, 
whose image do you see? And we know whose image is on this coin. It's Tiberius Caesar's. We also know what inscription is on this coin. It would be Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the god Augustus. You essentially have the image of someone who wants to be worshipped as a god and an inscription that says the son of God on a coin. This is Caesar's own privately, personally minted denarius. He had a mint in what is now Lyon, France, and all of these coins came out of that mint, his own personal mint. This was, these coins were his own personal property, and over 20 years, he issued these coins. And on the front, it had his own head with that slogan, that inscription, and on the back, it had a picture of the Roman goddess Pax, goddess of peace, with an inscription by her that said, High Priest. And these coins not only served as currency by which the emperor would employ his own soldiers and all those in his direct employment, but that he would also use as the currency for the subjected peoples where the Roman government would take over in new territories, they would distribute these, and that this was the currency to be used by suppressed people to pay tribute to Caesar, who was to be recognized as the supreme god over whatever local deities they might want to follow and worship. So when Jesus says whose image is on this, he's, he's using, he's like echoing Ten Commandment kind of languages, right? The Ten Commandments, you will have no other gods before me, you won't make any graven images. The people questioning Jesus on his integrity are in the temple with a graven image of a pretender god, and Jesus is saying, I don't have one, do you have one? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, here. The question, it's an indictment on their own integrity even as he asks it. They're able to produce the thing Jesus himself can't. They're in God's house with an image of a false God. And Jesus exposes them masterfully with this question. And he just says, look, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That word give, it's, it's like a repayment word. It's, it's, it's that render, whatever. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that often is like how you, it's what you'd use to say repaying a debt, right? It's a payback. Give back to Caesar whatever's his. Give back to God whatever's rightfully God's. In other words, whatever. Caesar can have all those worthless things that he mints from way over there, whatever. Give to God what is God's. Well, what is God's? And that's where this whole theology underlying what Jesus is saying would be right in the minds of all the Jewish hearers. What is God's is everything, right? What is God's is the land that he said there will be no other permanent owner. I am the owner. Everybody else here is just a tenant. Even my own people that live here as my blessed ones are simply tenants. Repay to God what is God's. Jesus isn't saying Caesar's got his stuff, God's got his stuff, and just give each their due. He's saying no. This is a moment of recognizing two rival kings over two rival kingdoms. Who wins the battle for your life? To whom will you pledge allegiance? Whom will you worship? Whom will you serve? And Jesus answers this question in a way where the Roman hearers would hear him say, pay to Caesar. And the Jewish hearers would hear him say, everything is God's. Give to God what is rightfully his.
And so when you begin to look at how this passage functions in the larger story that Mark is telling, what picture begins to emerge is one, whereas we've already seen Jesus, the one who's been confessed as God's anointed one, to bring in this new kingdom of God that is at hand. We've already seen Jesus as the one who's binding this strong man, right, to liberate and plunder his house. And we've seen that applied to the Romans. We've seen that applied to the religious establishment of the temple. God is doing something new in Jesus. And neither the Roman authorities nor the religious authorities can stop it, nor can they really participate in it without transforming what it is that they're doing and following behind Jesus. There's a new creation that Jesus is bringing. There's a new way of being in connection with God as his spirit is going to come to live with the people after Jesus dies and rises again and takes his throne and ushers in this kingdom and the people of God will be unleashed in the world in a new way to live with Jesus. And the question that Jesus is posing to his hearers is simply this. Will you give to God what is God's? the very breath in your lungs, the very fruit of the land, the very life that you have, the very talents, the very gifts that are yours? Will you press these into the service of seeking God's kingdom, God's peace, through God's king and high priest? Or are you gonna just dabble in all of the other little Caesars and paxes and high priests? Are you just going to let all of this other stuff distract and diffuse your life and your efforts? Are you going to live as a divided self? Are you going to live distracted? Are you going to live as hijacked? There's a political application, sure. I think if we begin to unpack this and say, well, what does this mean for our lives politically? All kinds of stuff, and I think some of the clearest clearest applications are going to have to do with, will we let God's vision of a flourishing world shape the way we imagine what flourishing looks like? And we will, will we let the means that Christ shows us as God's means for bringing his kingdom, love, prayer, self-sacrifice, speaking truth and power, being humble, not getting caught up in self-promoting stuff, will we let those means actually dictate the way we seek his kingdom? Or will we let ourselves get seduced and duped by all the power plays and by all the players, by all the people who want to make a splash, by all the people who are trying to bring about some other vision by some other means. Even when there's parts of that vision that look just the same, can we participate in those things? Can we participate in justice efforts? And can we participate in peacekeeping and peace-seeking in a way that doesn't sell the farm, but recognizes that it is only the kingdom of God that endures forever? And it is only the means of Jesus and the way of the cross that will bring it in any enduring way at all. The invitation here, I believe, is one to nonviolent opposition of injustice and pursuit of God's vision of shalom. It's one of, un- of fundamental allegiance, never being given to anything other than Jesus and his vision. It's one of never letting the ends justify other means that don't fit the way of Christ or other ends that don't fit God's vision of shalom, captivating our imagination participating according to the agency that we have in seeking this kingdom of Jesus, which could look like being a good little citizen, Christian. 
and it might look like civil disobedience. Following Jesus, though, is the way into wisdom and courage and peace of knowing which is which. And I think what, what this safeguards against in so many ways is all, all of the ways that we get tunnel vision around some aspect of the thing that we think is most important. And we become whatever. We become single-issue people, or we become pursuers of our own thing rather than having a broader picture of what God is doing in the world and seeking it robustly in the way of Christ. I also think there's something for the church here as we think about this. Alan Hirsch, the missiologist, talks about how we often live as confessing monotheists but practical polytheists. And that's what, you know, in other words, we confess one God, we come to church, we confess one God, but we live as though Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday are ruled by something other than our God from Sunday. That we, we appeal to other wisdoms, other sources of guidance, other sustaining powers to prop up our life the rest of the week. And so we live these divided lives that are ruled by competing wisdoms, not as integrated followers of Jesus in this one kingdom that compels our entire life and is extended to all the earth. And so one of the reasons Hirsch observes that young people come to the church and leave is that they come seeking something deep and nourishing for their souls. They come seeking wisdom that gives life and meaning to the daily stuff of life. And what they find here is a bunch of church people who are one way on Sunday and live just kind of like everybody else the rest of the week. So the calling here is a calling to integration that would renew us and make us renewing for the world, which is a pretty profound thing, I think, to reflect on as we think about our own calling in the church. And of course, the more deeper and the more deep and personal application is simply, will you let the single God, creator and preserver of you and all things, one who made heavens and the earth, the one who holds your life, will you let this one God actually touch all the areas of your life? Not compartmentalizing, not living as a divided self, not keeping some areas away from the healing, restorative touch of God, but to enter in fully with your whole self, to the God who gives him his whole self for your own sake and for the good of the world. That's the invitation to follow Jesus. And the one who calls you into that is the faithful one who has leveraged his whole self for you. Let that beauty, let that truth wash over you this morning. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for your love toward us in Christ and for the kingdom that you have established in him and will bring to fullness one day. As we live today and tomorrow and this week and the rest of our lives in the gap between what you have already done and what you have not yet brought to fullness, would you give us eyes to see the beauty and the wholeness of the path of life you set before us in Christ? Would you help us to know experiences of your love that renew us? that give us courage to wade into those spaces of discovering more of what your liberation means for our lives and what it means for our neighbors. Would you transform us by your life-giving spirit once again for our own sake and for the sake of the world? We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.